Hello everyone, I'm Giulio Prisco and this is the Turing Church uh, podcast. This podcast episode is about space flight. Space expansionism is a cornerstone of Turing Church and I plan to talk a lot about space flight in future writings and uh, podcast episodes. A few days ago, I was interviewed by Aga Bahari for the Neo Human Show. We discussed my last book, Futurist Spaceflight Meditations. The interview covers the political, cultural, philosophical, and spiritual aspects of spaceflight and human expansion in the solar system and beyond. Follow Aga on Twitter, where he goes by agologist and watched the new human videos on YouTube. Aga gave me permission to redistribute the audio of this interview in the Turing Church podcast. So here we go. Giulio Prisco, welcome back to Neo Human Podcast. This time the 98th episode, sir. Thank you very much for having me again. I enjoyed our uh, last conversation last year. Yes, indeed. It was right after the first launch of astronauts with um, SpaceX reusable rocket, which I know that it was. It was indeed. Yeah, I know you. Uh, you're very um, adamant in following what's going on with respect to space exploration and SpaceX and all that. And that was my second launch that I saw, and I recently just saw my fifth launch which every single time it really is a spiritual experience, which, again, is good to talk to you because you're talking about science, technology, but also about spirituality and religious aspect of what is going on in our yes. civilization. So congratulations for your new book, which is the main reason we're having this discussion, Futurist Spaceflight Meditations, which came out uh, recently, I believe, and it's available on Amazon and everywhere else. The digital and printed books are available. And audiobook, is it also available? Uh, no, no, not audiobook not yet. yet. Um, so we're going to definitely... Also because, uh, uh, you know, I understand that many people like uh, audiobook. The things here I, li- I like, I love reading so very much that you know for me uh, depriving myself of the pleasure of uh, reading uh, written words is unthinkable and uh, well but i do know that many people likes uh, like audiobooks yeah by the way let me just get a copy great i also show it um, as we talk about it yeah wonderful and this is a follow-up. Uh, would it be fair to say that this is a follow-up to your first book, Tales of the Turing Church? It's much uh, less general. Uh, I would. Uh, uh, I prefer to say that it is a, a zoom on one uh, chapter in Tales of the Turing Church, the chapter where I discuss uh, space uh, exploration. And since uh, I believe... Uh, that chapter is one of the most important in Tales of the Turing Church. I thought to expand it uh, in a standalone mm. book. We're definitely going to talk about it, but as I mentioned before we start recording, we're going public. 
I want to talk to you about a blog post that you had that uh, the title is I have resigned from the IEET board of directors. Would you mind if I read just the beginning of your post just so our audience can have some kind of a um, opinion? Mm, uh, mm, I was kind of hoping to avoid that, but anyway, let's All right. go. Please do. I have resigned from the board of directors of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, IEET. I have resigned in protest against a recent decision which hasn't been publicly announced yet. Like much of today's liberal left, the IEET has embraced certain currently fashionable by dangerously toxic trends, identity politics, Me Too, cancel culture. These trends start with good sentiments but become toxic and dangerous when pushed to unreasonable and often ridiculous extremes. And the reason I wanted to start with this is because I believe that what's going on with respect to un underlaying of technological debate and developments that we are dealing with, there is a war of ethos. There is a war of philosophical aspect of what it is that we are doing, what is the purpose of it, where we are headed, and why we are doing what we are doing. And so I think this is related because in many fields, especially AI ethics, this is almost entirely occupied by people who are coming from that, um, that political perspective, that philosophical perspective that you can call it far left, extreme left, whatever you want to call it. So liberal left, as you're calling it. So I, I just want you to very generally talk a little about it before we get into your book, just so we know what was the problem with this um, organization? Not exactly, but just let's hear it from you. Okay, and um, as a matter of fact, I do discuss these things in the book as well. And uh, my last book, Futurist Spaceflight Meditation, is one of the very few writings in which I have gone into any kind of detail about uh, you know what I think of uh, what's happening in the world of uh, politics and especially culture. I don't really like to discuss these things. And in fact, I almost never write about this for uh, essentially two reasons. The first is that, um, you know, it's a complete waste of time because uh, as things are today, you will not uh, persuade anyone when uh, discussing the politics and the culture wars. Nobody will persuade you. What will happen instead is that uh, you will start uh, calling each other names. And, uh, you know, I just uh, don't have the time for that. It's a complete waste of time. I prefer to dedicate my time to other things. But there is also another reason why I'm kind of reluctant to discuss these things. And it is that, you know, the world in which we live today is so uh, toxically polarized. You know, for example, in the United States, uh, we have a situation where 40% uh, of the people hate and are hated by the other 40%. It's a very heated situation. It's not good. It's not healthy. 
is not something that can lead us anywhere good. So I kind of feel that uh, my responsibility as a citizen is to stay away from this uh, debate. You know, uh, not uh, I don't want to contribute to uh, blowing on a fire that could become a very dangerous one. So that I normally stay out of, this, of uh, these things. In my writings, I focus on other things. In my social media posts on Facebook and Twitter, I also focus on other things. I almost entirely ignore uh, politics, just like uh, every now and then. Because, you know, I think this is the responsible thing to do. Let's just uh, uh, talk of something else. And let's just uh, discuss something else. Now, concerning... Uh, this IEET episode, let's uh, just say that uh, there was a decision taken by a very uh, narrow majority vote by the rest of the board. <coughs> and I did not agree at all with this decision. Uh, my disagreement was so strong that I resigned from the board. And I was kind of sad of doing that because, you know, I had been one of the co-founders of the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies back in 2004. Uh, and uh, I was full of enthusiasm at that time because I thought the Institute would uh, really amount to something one day. But now that uh, it has uh, fallen to cancel culture, Mm, I don't think uh, it's likely to go anywhere. And here again, uh, I have better things to do with my time. And so I preferred uh, to part ways as uh, friendly as possible, of course. But uh, I was just not interested in continuing to be part of that organization. Now, uh, coming to what exactly was uh, the episode that uh, uh, prompted me to resign from the IEET. I'm not at liberty to say, and I'm not at liberty to say it, because it was a discussion uh, among uh, the board of an organization, and the discussion led to a decision that that has never been communicated to the public, as far as I'm aware. So that, uh, you know, since it's not uh, a public decision, I'm not uh, at liberty to comment on it. Now, of course, uh, many people have uh, uh, guessed correctly exactly what decision I was uh, talking about. And uh, let's just say that it is not that difficult to guess. Yeah, I think a lot of us want to leave politicization alone just so we can do the stuff that we like. But the problem is that the polit politicization by totalitarians is not leaving us alone, you know, <laughs> to do whatever we want to do. So everything is being politicized. And I think it goes back to, again, a discussion that we had the first time that we 
talked about, I think we disagreed with respect to, for example, Mormon Transhumanist Association that you said that it's actually a beneficial thing for religions to adopt into or religions to yeah adopt a modern technological kind of a framework within themselves and this seems to me to be the same thing that uh, certain kind of people from certain political perspectives they are basically monopolizing on their ethos on their perspective and then using technology in order to empower that and this is affecting every single one of us ultimately that's that's one of the reasons that i wanted to start with this I can agree with that. And uh, there is also another reason why one, unfortunately, cannot keep so far from uh, politics as one would wish. It is when, you know, the things that really interest you depend on uh, political decisions that uh, uh, may or uh, may not be made. And this is exactly the case of a space flight. And this is the reason why I do discuss uh, political and uh, cultural issues in my book. Because, uh, you know, uh, it's very good that uh, private space flight operators like uh, Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos are doing all the wonderful uh, things that they are doing. But um, I'm not too optimistic when it comes to uh, their ability to do these things, uh, not uh, only without uh, government support, but even in uh, presence of some kind of uh, opposition from the political world. And uh, this is uh, very likely a risk that uh, we will be facing. You are reading, of course, of this uh, declaration that uh, of um, influencers that you know this uh, mo- uh, space program of billionaires are not something good and this and that and blah, blah, and blah, blah. And I think there is a very real uh, danger that uh, in countries like the United States, the administration may become more and more hostile to private uh, commercial spaceflight ventures. And uh, at the same time, of course, uh, we cannot uh, rely on uh, the government alone to take us back to the moon and then beyond because, you know, we have been waiting for that for 50 years and that hasn't happened, which means that this will not happen without uh, some game-changing uh, factor like the advent of uh, private space flight. So I do not think that our expansion into space can uh, proceed at this uh, moment without uh, at least some uh, moderate support from the government. And that means that, uh, unfortunately, uh, politics is still very much related to spaceflight. 
and uh, of course uh, culture overall is also very much related to space flight and these are things that i could not ignore in a book uh, dedicated to space flight as simple as that yeah absolutely do you see this uh, competition and conflict that is going on between us and china help development of further and further technology that I, I would imagine that you're considering space exploration to be the objective and goal of all of these technological yes. uh, advancement that we are experiencing, correct? Uh, not only space exploration, mm. um, space expansion is not exploration for the sake of science. It's much deeper than that. It is that we need to expand our habitat, our human habitat, beyond uh, this uh, planet and uh, you know it's not exploring uh, Mars uh, to see what Mars is like is like it's more uh, settling Mars to enable large numbers of people to eventually live there and then move beyond so yes space expansion is uh, what I'm really interested in. Do you see the conflict between U.S. and China helps this space expansion as a matter of um, survival, if not anything else? Yes, it's uh, it is really a matter of survival, and uh, you know, mm, helps. Uh, it can help in uh, two different ways. One is that, you know, uh, China will just go to the moon and will just uh, colonize Mars. And uh, this is the possibility that over the rest of this century, it will be China that uh, uh, leads human expansion in the solar system. And if this happens, I think this is good. I mean, what uh, it's important for me is that humanity expands beyond the Earth. Now, whether that humanity is uh, American humanity or uh, Chinese humanity or uh, African or whatever, is a very secondary consideration to me. The important thing is that we do it as human beings. Who does it first? It's less important. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm... Uh, uh, while uh, I mean, I'm not uh, a fan of today's China, on the contrary, I am uh, very critical of today's China. Because, you know, I keep reading about this, um, um, how do they call it, uh, social control system, something like that. Uh, social credit they, score. What they basically want, social yeah. credit score, what they basically want uh, to achieve is a society where everyone is monitored from the cradle to the grave 24-7 every day by the government. <coughs> and of course, they will be monitoring the compliance of the citizens to all that uh, the Chinese the Communist uh, Party thinks is good. And well, um, I think this is no good. I'm not a fan of that kind of social organization, not at all. But while I'm not a fan of the social organization system of today's China, you know, I am 
a fan of humanity moving to settle space. So if uh, uh, it is inevitable that uh, China takes the lead, then I say, okay, why not? Welcome to China. Now, of course, uh, for me, uh, this is uh, a, a easier to say than for an American, because I'm not an American. Uh, so I have, uh, I uh, had and still have a great admiration for America. I'm not a citizen. I do not live in America. So that, you know, if it's uh, America or uh, China, if you ask me that, okay, well, uh, I would like to see a continued leadership of America, but uh, it, if it has to be China, so be it. But going back to America, what I think is that at this moment, the only thing that can revitalize the US space uh, program and uh, make sure that uh, it stays vital is competition with China. Uh, in this uh, example, competition is good. If there is uh, an immediate and uh, credible uh, threat that uh, China could be about uh, to achieve space supremacy in the cislunar space, and of course convert that uh, space supremacy into geopolitical and even military advantages here on the Earth. That, I think, would be something that no American administration, regardless of its uh, political color, could ever afford to ignore. Uh, and I think that is uh, happening now, and I think it is good. I mean, without uh, China, I'm not very optimistic about the U.S. administration to give uh, any damn about space. With China, they have to. Yeah, that's a very good point. Space maximalism, basically. Now, whatever is going to happen is going to happen f for as long as we get to where we're supposed to be getting, which is popularizing the solar system first and then beyond with humanity. Yes. I think this is a good time to read the beginning of your book and then get some ideas from you that why this was right now was the right time to write and publish this book. You're saying in the introduction, we must strenuously push toward our cosmic destiny among the stars, beginning to expand beyond the earth before it's too late is our most important task at this moment in history. Many actors have important roles to play, and there's room for everyone. Spaceflight will also help find viable solutions for current developmental, environmental, and social problems. But the road to the stars is full of imp uh, impediments and roadblocks. We will not advance as fast as we wish. Therefore, we must keep our moods strenuous and our drive strong. We need an optimistic spaceflight culture oriented to the future with energizing visions of interplanetary, interstellar, and cosmic futures. We also need a futurist space 
philosophy, which I totally agree. And that's exactly why I said that this war over the ethos that is now being politicized is essential with respect to our technological advancement and uh, space expansion. Yes, well, you have read the, the first uh, two paragraphs of the book, uh, and uh, after that, uh, perhaps there is no need <laughs> that you read the rest of the book, because what I wanted is to say in these uh, very short uh, paragraphs exactly what the book was about. But no, I'm joking. Uh, I think uh, you That's want to thesis. read the book. You'll that find, is the thesis uh, of your very book. Other. Yes. Right, right, yeah. right. Yes, and the thing, yes. Uh, I'm saying the most important things here. Uh, first, uh, that, you know, um, moving beyond the Earth, living all over the solar system, one day leaving even the solar system beyond and moving to other stars, is, uh, you know, it is uh, the most important thing because it's what we have to do. It's uh, built in our genes. That's what humans do. And it's uh, also kind of an obligation to the Earth, to life, and to the very universe, an obligation that we have to bring life out there. Of course, there is other life out there. But we have something to add. And uh, adding this uh, something that uh, we can add is an, exist is an existential imperative for humanity. So this is my consideration number one. Now, um, it's a philosophical position. And I cannot expect everyone else to automatically agree with my philosophical position if I don't persuade them first. And uh, persuading them has to be based on uh, arguments that uh, they can accept. That's why I dedicate uh, a big part of the book uh, to uh, describe some uh, practical uh, benefits in terms of economy, in terms of uh, national security, in terms of environmental protection, social justice that uh, space flight uh, will uh, bring. Uh, I tried to persuade those who do not immediately relate to my overall philosophical position that we must expand into space because we must expand into space because it's our cosmic destiny. So this was the second important thing. The third important thing is a reflection on uh, the history of the last few decades. You know, uh, where you are uh, younger than me. A little bit. And, uh, yeah, in, you are not, uh, on July 20, 1969, uh, you are not even alive. I was. I was 11 years old. And I was watching this uh, extremely bad quality video image on a black and white TV. And it was like, well, this uh, is our future, and this is my future. I was a kid. I thought that uh, when I turned uh, 25 or 30, there would be a city on the moon where I could move to. 
This is where uh, we landed on the moon. Keys, I'm just saying for people who don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had so many great expectations, all the kids of my generation, and we have been frustrated because uh, after 1972, we have never been back to the moon. Uh, now we might be back to the moon uh, before the end of this uh, decade, perhaps, and not even 100% sure of that. So maybe things are moving again, but one thing is sure is that uh, it has taken a lot more than we thought. And things will continue to be that way. Mm. I mean, it's uh, uh, inevitable that in a complex world with uh, technology, finance, uh, politics, and culture, and all that, we will not advance as fast as we would like to advance on the road to the stars. But we need to keep our enthusiasm alive. And uh, here is where I come to the paramount importance of uh, cultural factors. We need to uh, engineer cultural factors that uh, uh, permit a sustainable space uh, program over the next few decades regardless of all the roadblocks and difficulties and uh, lack of money and uh, political opposition that we will inevitably encounter. This is the importance of uh, popularizing space. This is the importance of good science fiction. This is the importance of uh, new spiritual movements related to the space expansion of humanity. These things are extremely important, and uh, this is uh, what uh, my own work is mostly related to. You had mentioned in the book that you start writing it right after the first launch of astronauts by uh, SpaceX reusable rocket, right? What yes. made you think that this is the right time? to write this book, and who exactly are you talking to? Is it the general public, or is this a specific group of um, people with influence and power? What was, the, what was the objective, and what inspired it when it did? Uh, you know, if uh, the, those uh, in the general public want to read my book, I can only be happy of that. At the same time, Mm, I understand that uh, those who do not already agree with me on most things may find it uh, difficult to relate uh, personally to my book because I say very clearly that to me, space flight is important in itself. I say that uh, space flight is uh, space flight is the most important thing, and that is my philosophical position. Uh, many people won't like that. From many comments that I received, many people actually don't like that. Uh, so that uh, the book is mostly directed at uh, space enthusiasts like me, who do share my philosophical convictions, and I give them a lot of 
practical arguments and consideration in support of uh, spaceflight, uh, in support of human expansion into space, because I hope that uh, they can use these uh, arguments and considerations when uh, talking to others. Uh, so I'm not uh, credible to many because uh, I am too much of a space enthusiast, but uh, perhaps some of my readers are. For example, uh, you know, there is uh, some kind of uh, tension between uh, enthusiasm for space and uh, enthusiasm for uh, things like uh, protecting the environment from climate change. These are seen entirely, entirely erroneously, in my opinion, as two conflicting uh, goals. On the contrary, I offer some uh, arguments to understand that uh, these are not conflicting goals, but on the contrary, they are uh, complementary goals that reinforce each other. And uh, in particular, you know, space, expanding into space is really the only way to protect the environment of the Earth in the long term. And here I'm talking of uh, things like, for example, uh, offshoring some heavily polluting heavy industries of space. I'm talking of things like uh, mm, extracting uh, energy from space and using it on the Earth. Right? Uh, in the last few days, uh, there have been, for example, uh, uh, papers about space-based solar power. And this is another consideration. If uh, we can extract energy up there and use it and uh, use it down here, that means we don't have to extract the energy down here in the first place. There is the possibility, and that is specifically related to the moon, that uh, mining the moon for uh, helium-3 could uh, provide inexhaustible reserves of fuels for future uh, nuclear fusion reactors. And in the last few days, uh, interesting synchronicity, we are also hearing a lot of the fact that nuclear fusion is becoming a viable operational technology. At the end, you know, these are uh, so many things that are uh, conspiring, to put it like that, to make people understand that uh, if we want to protect the environment of the Earth, then we need to expand into space beyond the Earth. That will only be beneficial for the planet. So that uh, this is an entire chapter of my book. And it's something that, you know, if you have some uh, environmentalists uh, friends of the, um, the people who are fans of uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, you can use these arguments to persuade them that uh, space is good for the environment of the Earth. And then they can use 
these arguments to persuade other people and so on. I think one of the problems that these um, a lot of people do have to even begin to comprehend the value and viability of the idea of space expansion goes back to inequality and class issues here on Earth because for a lot of people, it's a matter of how they're going to survive the next day. And so even talking about this, uh, the space yes. is kind of, they take it as offensive because they're like, we, we don't even care. You know, we just want to survive and raise our family. And so when you're focusing on space, it means that you're ignoring all the problems that we are dealing with here on Earth. And so, you know, I'm being called a leftist for talking about inequality. And like, for example, I'm absolutely in favor of UBI uh, in, you know, as... as I mean, they're inevitable. You know, we're dealing with explosion of technological tools because they're advancing exponentially and our experience is uh, linear. But at the same time, I understand if I talk to somebody about space expansion, that person look at me in a very strange way. Like, I just want my kid to survive a school and I be able to pay my rent. And this is a point that I completely understand. Um, and here again, um, I made many considerations in the book to show that it is not so. Uh, expanding into space does not, uh, in the long term, take uh, important resources away from important things that we should do here on the Earth. On the contrary, uh, space expansion is an enabler for all these things. And, you know, uh, an analogy um, that could be done is uh, what happened in the United States in the 19th century, where uh, people started to move west. No, uh, it's not like everyone was happy in uh, New York. It's not like everyone had enough to eat in New York. Uh, but, and it was a very wise move, the government decided to encourage, and they had to spend money on this, of course, they decided to encourage a mass uh, movement toward the, the West. They did that with financial incentives and things like that. And, you know, that uh, didn't directly change the condition of uh, the poor people in New York. Not uh, directly and not immediately, but eventually it did. What happened eventually is that the expansion of the United States toward the Pacific Ocean uh, was one of the factors that uh, made the United States the most advanced economy in the world. And, you know, there are uh, still some uh, people who go hungry in New York uh, today, but I think we can agree that uh, there are not as many as the people who went hungry uh, 150 years ago. So that ultimately... The expansion of the habitat of the U.S. population that was only living on the East Coast 
it has uh, eventually resulted in uh, economic uh, prosperity for everyone. This is one example. Another example is much uh, closer to us in time. And uh, it is uh, the development of uh, internet uh, technology that started in uh, the 60s with uh, the financial support of the government, then went uh, kind of invisible for uh, a couple of decades, and then started to explode in the early 80s. A few years after that, we started to see the first mobile phones. Now, uh, perhaps you don't remember the first uh, mobile phones. Oh, I should have uh, taken uh, one of my first mobile phones that I still uh, have to show it on camera. It was... Uh, it the was brick the, size. It, <laughs> yeah, it was heavy as a brick. I had uh, to buy a special carrying the case for it because of course it didn't fit in my pocket and of course it costed a hell of a lot this was what year this must have been 90 this must have been like 94 95 something like that and uh, something that many people said is that well okay these uh, things that you have to pay two thousand dollars for a mobile phone is an insult to the poor and I can, I can understand if uh, some uh, people felt insulted seeing the others on the road with an expensive mobile phone. But what we used to say is that, okay, look, we are at the very early stage of a new technology. What will happen? Because that's uh, the evolution of important technologies, that the price of these things will go down and down and down. And at the same uh, time, the performance of these things will go up. And this, even if we cannot see exactly how right now, will entirely change the world in a couple of decades. And that is exactly what happened. Because you know, now a mobile phone doesn't cost money. I mean, if you don't want to spend uh, money, the phone company will uh, give you the mobile phone for free if you have a contract with them. And the performance of the phones you know, is uh, phenomenally better than it was uh, 20 years ago. And now, um, I don't think I know anyone who doesn't have a mobile phone. And at least if uh, we stay in the Western world, this is also true in the most... Uh, underprivileged uh, inner cities in the US and Europe. Essentially, everyone has a mobile phone. And uh, the impact of everyone having a mobile phone is overall good. I'm persuaded of that. And the same will happen with space. Now, spaceflight costs a lot of money. And at times, uh, it's difficult to see, to see exactly uh, uh, why we are going to space and what we are going to space for but just give time to time just wait for a few decades and it seems evident from so many early warning signs that we can see right now that in a few decades you know it will be 
very evident in hindsight why we decided to expand into outer space. And it will be evident that the overall impact on humanity will have been good. I'm sure of that. Yeah, um, another example of people being offended by expensive new technology was uh, Google Glass. That when it came out, we talked a lot about that in this podcast, that when it came out, people were being attacked who were wearing them. There were also an aspect of, like an elitist aspect to it that you couldn't just go out and buy it. You had to be chosen and be given those devices. And this is almost 10 years ago that people were being attacked around Silicon Valley in San Francisco. All these big tech buses were being attacked. And now politically, this is coming from the right. There is a backlash against technology altogether. And there is a revival of traditionalism. They're saying we have to go back to our traditional roots. And they all seem to be connected in the sense that technology is evolving exponentially and we 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 can't even comprehend it if we are not seeing the big picture and a lot of people not only they get offended they get really scared and this being scared has real world political social and cultural consequences that can affect what you're saying the advancement of technology is not as fast as maybe we want it to be or as it needs to be in order for us to survive as a species as a civilization I prefer to be optimist and think that uh, even if uh, things will be difficult, I prefer to hope that we will make it. And even more important than that, I prefer to do all the little things that I can do to get uh, closer to that objective. But, you know, uh, back to the tension between uh, uh, technology and our uh, cultural uh, traditions, I don't think that there has to be an opposition. I think we can uh, advance technology, even advance technology uh, very fast uh, within our uh, cultural traditions. I mean, it would be a long discussion, but... Uh, I'm not immediately persuaded that uh, it is not the case. Do you feel the same way about democracy as a system of governance? Because you mentioned China advancing really quickly. It, in a way, is as a consequence of a central structure of authority that they have. And here in the U.S., all the places basically that are developing and doing research about these uh, technological advancements, they are being run as centralized uh, points of authority, centralized structures of authority, like it, whether it's DARPA or a SpaceX or Google. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not really a fundamentalist in this. I think there is room for uh, many different uh, organizational models. You know, I do tend to have a slight. Uh, preference myself uh, for uh, decentralized models, but if it happens that you know the quickest solution to an important uh, problem can only come from a centralized structure, then I would say why not? This is the same kind of reasoning that I was making before, saying that you know uh, government support is still necessary 
for uh, space flight and space expansion. We cannot, uh, I mean, there is uh, nothing bad in the idea of uh, government itself. There's nothing bad about the idea of gov government itself. I guess it's just a form of government. No. There, uh, yes. Uh, it's the form. It's, no, it's, a, it's a management thing. Some uh, organizational structure can be better than other organizational structures for uh, some specific uh, purposes, and that's it. Not really fundamentalist here. I welcome uh, many different possibilities. It just seems like the long-term, big-picture kind of a view is maybe incompatible with the system that people run on the basis of being elected and then re-elected rather than being focused on some kind of an objective and determine policy on that basis rather than you know determining policy based on the next century rather than the next four years. This is this is the reason I'm saying about the right, but. Uh... Mm, yeah, I understand this point, but um, you know, here again, it comes uh, down to whether we are uh, intelligent and pragmatic enough to work together with uh, people who do not think in exactly the same way as we do. And as a matter of fact, you know, uh, reading uh, the news now, and uh, especially reading social media, you can uh, develop the impression that, uh, you know, people on the left will never accept or to work together with people on the right and the other way. But, you know, it hasn't always been like that. As a matter of fact, this is quite uh, a new development that has accelerated in the last few years. In the past, it was a perfectly normal thing, for example, in the United States, for uh, Democrats and Republicans to push a bill that uh, was good for both. Mm, there were, I mean, these is really an important thing. In fact, uh, you know, um, space flight, the advancement of space flight, needs bipartisan support. Otherwise, uh, the rocket just doesn't take off. Uh, from the inception of a space uh, program to its completion, it does take a long time indeed. It may be 10, it may be 15 years, it may be decades. And you know, this can only be compatible with uh, a system like in the United States or many Western democracies, where the color of the government changes every few years. It can only be compatible with this if there is bipartisan support. And in fact, I think this is, uh, if uh, we keep talking of uh, government space, there has to be bipartisan support. But since the government can also impact the space uh, commercial sector, 
you know, uh, the government could kill Elon Musk with over-regulation anytime. So that, uh, you know, it's not only that we need bipartisan support for government space uh, program. We need bipartisan support for space flight itself, even in the private sector, especially in the United States, in Western Europe. And, uh, you know, the uh, exhortation that um, uh, I give many times in this book is that, you know, uh, politicians, uh, I'm not going to read, but I'm trying to quote from memory or something like that. I say somewhere that uh, politicians of the left and politicians of the right should just uh, uh, let go of the toxic aspects of their respective ideologies, should just let go of their hatred for each other and just sit the fuck <laughs> down to define programs that uh, everyone is willing to live with for a while. This is exactly what needs to happen in space in the West. Now, in China, they don't have this problem, or at least uh, um, this uh, problem is not apparent. So that, yes, as you were saying, uh, China can think long term. But this doesn't mean that we cannot think long term. And you know, uh, the Chinese can think uh, long term in uh, their own way. Uh, their way is not our way. So we must learn to think long term in our way. I'm not uh, ready to let uh, democracy go. You know, uh, when you first started talking about democracy, came to my mind my two uh, favorite descriptions of uh, democracy. So the first, uh, I don't know who said that first, uh, is that democracy are uh, two uh, wolves and a lamb deciding democratically by majority vote what to have. One of the founding people. fathers, I don't exactly remember who, but one of the founding fathers said it. Uh, perhaps somebody important said that. Huh? And uh, the other, and I think it was uh, Sir Winston Churchill who said it first, is that democracy is the worst system of uh, uh, government with the exception of all the other systems. So that, you know, even uh, uh, in view of the structural weakness of uh, democracy that is quite evident in the story of the two wolves and the land, I still think uh, democracy is uh, better than uh, the alternatives that we have uh, been uh, trying so far. So I just found it. It was said by Benjamin Franklin, democracy is two wolves and lambs voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is well-armed lamb contesting the vote. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Second Amendment. I think it's it's makes a very yeah. different, uh, apparent different and very obvious different when um, the populace are I didn't know. Armed. I, I didn't know the second half 
of the situation. Yeah. But what you're saying is totally sensible because space flight and the space expansion is about humanity. It's not about left and right, Democrat and Republican. These are all blocks that we are passing through to get to the point of first surviving as one humanity and then expanding into, you know, we might be human plus or whatever that comes next after humanity. Just that it seems like there is a battle right now about what is the definition of humanity and therefore what is the goal of humanity. That's where we are. It seems like it. And I think you're a very um, valuable kind of a perspective because you're bringing spirituality and quote-unquote God into it because that is the ultimate uh, purpose and ultimate ethos of what humanity as a collective, regardless of whatever kind of ideology we have, can strive towards and can um, can build towards that kind of an objective that is God-given, for lack of a better term. Right. Um, we don't even have to use explicitly the term God. I mean, uh, you finished the book with some, it. Some uh, people want. Yeah. Yes, 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 I do. Mm. I finished the book with a quite um, unconventional concept of God. Unconventional in the sense that my God is not a supernatural God. I mean, uh, I think the concept of supernatural doesn't make any sense to me. Because if you define nature as all that exists, then uh, supernatural doesn't exist by definition. So everything is uh, uh, natural. Now, of course, uh, we may have to expand your definition of uh, nature to make room for things that do exist in nature. So uh, there is an overall organizational principle in the universe that kind of uh, uh, pulls the universe above toward the increasing levels of complexity and uh, you know, generates uh, intelligent life. Well, first it generates non-intelligent life, then it generates intelligent life, then it may generate one day super-intelligent life. And one aspect of this uh, principle of uh, increasing complexity and penetration of consciousness and intelligence in the whole universe, one aspect of this is that we must go to space. We must leave the Earth. We must uh, bring our DNA, our uh, culture everywhere in the universe, among the stars. This is uh, a universal uh, principle that you don't have to call God, but you can call God if you want. And uh, I think this is what uh, uh, traditional religions refer to in the most abstract uh, parts of their theology. Then, besides that, you have uh, the evolution of superintelligence itself. You know, we will go to the stars. We'll expand among the stars. And uh, humanity itself uh, uh, 
uh, will be changed. We will uh, edit our genome. We will perhaps uh, upload our minds to uh, computational systems much more powerful than a biological uh, brain. We will do all these things and we will ascend toward uh, godlike uh, levels and conditions that uh, we probably are not even are not even able to imagine now. And so many countless other alien civilizations in the universe must have done exactly the same things. And this is another reason why we must go to the stars to find uh, fissures among the stars. Civilization much more advanced than ours. And uh, one of the thing that I have in the last chapter of my book that you were referring to is a wonderful quote by Stanley Kubrick, the director of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, where, uh, you know, I don't remember to quote by heart, but uh, if you read the book, just read it. He's, uh, you know, he's saying in very few words, that uh, out there in the universe there exist uh, beings so inconceivably advanced from our point of view that we can only call them gods. Whatever else, uh, what, uh, whatever other name will be a lack of honesty. So there are uh, gods out there, and this is uh, another religious concept. What uh, Stanley Kubrick did not say, but his uh, collaborator, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, did say that, is that we ourselves, if we are lucky, and if we do things well, we ourselves may become a godlike civilization in the future. And that, again, is among the ultimate objectives of our uh, quest to go to the stars. We have to go to the stars out there to do all that. Yeah, and now there are philosophical and, dare I say, religious attempts are being made in order to create some kind of an ethos on, the, on this exact basis that you're saying, whether it's simulation, hypothesis, or theory, or Jason Giorgiani's Prometheism. The, yeah, these are yeah. all coming from traditional religions, breaking the mold and moving yes. towards whatever yes. that is coming next, which I think they're very valuable. Yes, in fact, I've been listening to your interviews with uh, Jason Giorgiani and uh, your uh, two separate interviews with uh, Ritz van Werk. Yes, basically, when uh, Ritz says that his version of the simulation hypothesis is a necessary adaptation of the metaphors that uh, religion uses to communicate to people, I think he's uh, totally right. Hold on, one moment, I think I need to put the power cable into my computer. Here we go. Amazing. I had Jason Giorgiani twice. I don't know if you listened to both of them. Uh, no, I listened to yeah, one. Yeah, I had him. Um, I will look for uh, yeah. the The first one was when his Prometheus book came out. 
maybe a few months ago. And the second one was after that? Yeah, after that, he wrote a book uh, called Closer Encounters about UFOs. And this came out basically as a response to the government, the U.S. government report on UFOs. Oh, I need to read Oh, I need to read that. I book. really like him. I mean, he's a very controversial kind of a figure because of, you know, some of his views. But uh, I think he's extremely unique and he dares going to places that, you know, not that many people, I don't think, you know, can't even begin comprehending the possibility of them. I liked his book. Maybe I didn't like 100% of it. But I certainly did like a good 80% of it. Yeah, excellent. Well, this is a pleasure that you've been listening to the interviews that I've done with them. Two of my uh, favorite guests, definitely. What are uh, some of the characteristics of uh, the ethos that you would recommend for humanity to have in order to move uh, to the point that we can decide as humanity rather than left and right, black and white, you know, Democrat and Republican and all that? Mm, uh, I don't have a name for it. The name that comes closer to my mind is uh, Cosmism, is uh, from uh, the Russian Cosmist philosophical movement that was uh, that started in uh, Russia between the end of the nineteenth century and the beginning of the twentieth century. But, uh, you know, they, they use a language that uh, we find uh, very much uh, outdated now. I mean, if you read the writings of a Russian cosmist philosopher, you wouldn't understand much, and perhaps you wouldn't like what uh, you read. Mm, thinking of uh, more contemporary Examples. Mm, I will. Uh, um, talk of an excellent book written. Uh, give me one moment. I just need to tell my wife to turn the water off. Yeah, it is background noise. Uh, there is an author called Stephen Wolf who wrote a great book called The Obligation. By the way, if you never had Steve on the podcast, you should definitely, on, uh, on uh, the show, you should uh, definitely have him. It's a very short book, and uh, he says much better, perhaps, the same things that I say, that, you know, all the things that we have been discussing, uh, moving beyond the Earth, living in the solar system, uh, moving to other stars, leaving the Earth behind, are our obligation to ourselves, our obligation to the Earth itself, our obligation to life, our obligation to the universe, and even so Stephen doesn't uh, use explicitly religious words, our obligation to God. Now, this is the ethos that uh, I recommend, which is basically a reformulation of the cosmist ethos in uh, language that is more understandable 
to people here and now. Let's uh, fill this obligation that we have to ourselves and to the universe around us to contribute to awaken the universe to life, consciousness, superintelligence, and perhaps a godlike nature. This is our obligation. This is what we are here for. When uh, earlier you said, of course there are, <clears throat> excuse me, of course there are other lives beyond Earth. On what basis do you say that? On what kind of a life uh, are you talking about? Conscious life or just like bacterial life? Oh, well, bacteria, bacteria, I guess it could be conscious too, but you know what I mean. Bacteria life and animal life Sentient. and human life life and uh, conscious life and super conscious life. There is room for all possible sources of life. As a matter of fact, I'm persuaded that you know, life is not an accident. Is not uh, the result of. Uh, excuse me, one moment. Uh, I have to tell my wife again that uh, she wants to cook dinner. So perhaps so good, man. We, uh, it happens. Things just happen. Just uh, yeah, just <laughs> take five. Uh, just uh, five more minutes after that. Uh, okay, right on. <laughs> but this, uh, but this thing about life is important. You know, uh, Life is not a random accident that happened uh, as a result of a random fluctuation that uh, happened but could not have happened. Mm, I have a completely different view. I think that uh, the very laws of fundamental physics are uh, wired to eventually produce complexity, life, consciousness, intelligence, uh, super intelligence and the god likeness, it could not have been another way. It has to be this way. One uh, consequence is that uh, there is life everywhere. It's not ruled out that uh, we will find some elementary examples of life here in the solar system. For example, there is a niche on uh, uh, planned to one of the ice moons in the outer solar system that may have an ocean uh, which may harbor life, we will find something in the solar system. And when we eventually move out to the stars, we will find all sorts of life, from simple life to societies like... Uh, uh, our human civilization to inconceivably more advanced alien societies. We will find all of that. Great. I'm, sure I'm not going to um, keep you much further from the delicious dinner that I'm sure your wife is preparing and my best to your wife as well. Uh, Julia Prisco's book, yeah, Thank Julia you very Prisco's much. book is called Future is Spaceflight Meditations. Uh, check him out all over uh, internet. Wonderful. I'm also showing uh, showing the cover and the Amazon page and all that. Um, just please share your message to the humanity as the final saying of this episode of podcast. Let's just go to space.